I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Coronavirus cases are continuing their sharp rise across the United States. There have been increases in the daily rate of positivity in 35 states, increases in hospitalizations in 26 states, and increases in daily deaths in 13 states. Public health officials are now more sternly stressing the need for masks, social distancing, and hand-washing as traditional methods of controlling outbreaks like testing and contact tracing fall short. This is a good time to be talking to the director of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Robert Redfield, who joins us now along with our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. Especially from an infectious disease and public health standpoint, what needs to happen now and how quickly does that need to happen to change the trajectory that we're on? Well, Jen, I think the most important message that we need to get to all individuals in our country is that we're in this together. Um, And to, to really interrupt and slow the transmission of this virus, we need all of us to take on the responsibility to really actively embrace, which in fact are very powerful, weapons. Um, We're not defenseless here. Some people may think that they're so simple that they can't have much power, but in fact, they're very powerful. And that is the social distancing, the wearing of face coverings, and uh, obviously really, uh, you know, embracing um, hand hygiene, you know, and then, you know, following the guidance uh, of the local public health people in your community, as there may be some variation of how to implement that. But this is really critical. This really does work. We've done household studies, for example, of of the COVID infection. And if you look at those households that really practiced isolation, we didn't see significant household transmission in households that had this virus. And And the households that chose not to do that, we saw substantial transmission. So my appeal, once again, is uh, to be extremely serious about embracing uh, the social distancing, the wearing of face coverings when you um, can't maintain six feet social distancing and you're out in public and washing, uh, washing your hands. I think these are really fundamental, important things for us to fully embrace. And particularly, um, you know, the millennials and the Generation Z I give the example, you know, you might be a 30-year-old, fairly good runner running through Central Park, and you just happen to not have a mask on and, and run right past uh, to, right. Uh, you know, an 80-year-old couple sitting on the bench, and, you know, there ends up significant consequences of that activity. So that's the right. number one. You see the outbreak now reaching young people, and we need young people to embrace uh, actively Uh, the message that we've continued to put out on social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing. Right. One of the data points that I think you probably agree um, needs some work is the fact that only approximately 45% of all the CDC records have a race or ethnic background attached to it. Is that because of the way it's being recorded and what what is the CDC doing to address that so we can get a better grasp on, on these populations? Jen, it's really important that um, we do, in fact, accomplish that. I think one of the important things I've 
push since I became CDC director was the underinvestment in what I call the core capabilities of public health. And one of the most important is data, data analytics, and the capacity to do predictive data analysis. Um, we need to have a highly integrated uh, public health data system for the whole country. And we are working, Congress has begun to give us resources to get that accomplished. But in the meanwhile, we need to try to solve the issues with what we have. As you know, um, the way CDC gets its data, it has to be reported by the states, the, the, the local jury health departments, the territorial tribal health departments. Um, so we, we are continuing to uh, highlight how important this is that the local health departments accomplish that for us. Uh, Congress has, uh, we uh, do have now on testing the requirement uh, when tests come in to have uh, five data fields, which will include ethnic group and, and, and race. So we will continue to get better understanding of what the overall uh, rate of positivity is in different populations in different parts of the world. Um, but again, I think this outbreak just underscored something that I've testified yeah. for Congress a number of times is that for, for decades, our nation's underinvested in the public health system and one of the most important things for us to get up to speed. So we're committed to improving it. It's improving substantially uh, each week each uh, that we do this. Um, and we're gonna continue to do that until we, we're able to get uh, comprehensive data on all infections. The CDC have plans to recommend um, an early influenza vaccine campaign. The influenza season uh, co coinciding potentially with COVID is, as you know, I've said, it's going to be very difficult. Um, and clearly we are, as we speak, have programs to uh, try to increase the uh, perspective of the American public to vaccinate with flu with confidence, particularly groups that have been underrepresented, African Americans, for example. You know, the other day, we received an EUA from the FDA, which has given us the EUA for our combined test that we developed that you can do uh, to test both for um, influenza A, influenza B, and COVID, uh, seeing that this is going to be important. Um, and we have worked with the manufacturers to make sure we can get as much flu vaccine this season as possible, anticipating that the public is going to uh, uh, respond to our, our our communication strategies that we are doing now, and we'll continue to do uh, through September and the fall to get people vaccinated. I think right now we have a commitment of 189 million doses. CDC also bought an extra 7.1 million doses for uninsured adults. Usually we buy about 500,000. So it is gonna be critical. Uh, we're going to do everything we can to get the American public to help us not get our medical system overrun by the co-occurrence of these two respiratory pathogens. And I argue the best way to, uh, that all of us can help in that process is to get vaccinated against flu. It will potentially allow a hospital bed to be there for someone with COVID who needs it, and it, it will, in fact, save lives. I field a lot of questions in my medical practice and even within ABC News of people saying, you know, I was I was just away, I'm coming back, I want to get tested before I come back to work. And I say there's that is not a recommendation. We don't know when to test people. You would need serial, staggered, sequential testing. Are there any plans for the CDC to make official yeah. recommendations on this? Well, this is very important. First, we want to clarify any and the FDA has clarified this too that Anyone who thinks they may be infected independent of symptoms um, should be and should get a test. 
And there was a, you know, some confusion, I think, in, in some uh, groups out there saying, if you don't have symptoms, the test isn't indicated. No, the test is indicated for symptomatic or asymptomatic who uh, have reason to believe they may be infected, whether it's contact tracing, et cetera. You know, you could argue whether, you know, it's, it's the young individuals we talked about that happened to be at a mass gathering where they didn't have maximum social distancing and face coverings. Um, so that's really important. Secondly, you point out, that we're, we're, we're challenged with this virus because unlike flu, um, probably anywhere from 20 and in some uh, um, outbreak investigations, it's been as high as 80% of people actually don't have symptoms. And so when you have a public health response that's based on case identification and contact tracing isolation that's driven by symptoms, you can see that we have to complement that. So we have requested and we've dispersed over $10 billion to the states to develop their testing strategy, that they develop a surveillance strategy for asymptomatic infection, particularly in nursing homes, prisons, homeless shelters, occupational plants like meatpacking plants, but also targeted in communities where they're seeing transmission to set up sentinel sites to see when they start to see the percent positivity to change. So each jurisdiction will do it differently, but we did provide federal assistance, as I said, of $10 billion to the states and they've come up with their plans for June and July and in July 15th, their plans for the rest of the year do. Um, but I do think it's important to look at how we use testing in a strategic way in light of us understanding that so many people, particularly those that are under the age of 45, have a high likelihood if they don't have comorbidities, of presenting with no symptoms whatsoever. Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, is good enough to join us as Americans get ready to mark July 4th. What we do this weekend could well determine the future course of the virus, and there is a new worry. Dr. Redfield, what does the CDC know about this possible mutation of the coronavirus strain? Is it more deadly? Is it more infectious? Well, it's interesting, as you know, the recent uh, virus, which they call the D614G strain, um, I think a couple of in the recent paper itself, I think what we do know is that virus is starting to really dominate. So when a virus dominates, then it has a selective advantage in the population. Uh, what it appears is that that virus can replicate uh, more effectively, reproduce itself more effectively in in the test tube in humans in, in human cells. Um, it's obviously now seen to dominate. So um, it does have characteristics that, in fact, it's become more infectious. Uh, so what I think you're seeing is a virus that has gained in its ability uh, to reproduce itself, what we call a replica- re- replication advantage. Um, it is starting to dominate. We have no evidence, though, that that's associated with increased pathogenicity at this time. Did it have to be this way, though? Because just a month ago, everything seemed good. The nation was reopening. Restaurants, stores were coming back. Now the number of cases is skyrocketing. You know, Aaron, it's really important because both Tony Fauci and I tried to say this, is that we do have to stay humble and recognize that we've just been introduced to this virus. We don't really know this virus. This isn't like flu where you could sit down and ask me questions and I could have a high degree of confidence that I know what to predict. Um, The increased cases that we're seeing now, you know, probably have multiple 
causes. You mentioned one. If there's a viral strain, for example, that has a transmission advantage, that may be contributing. Uh, obviously, it's shifted uh, clearly now into younger populations that may have different transmission risk uh, dynamics. Uh, and I think we've seen that if we've turned on the television with some of the uh, mass gatherings of young individuals that seem to not uh, be as focused on um, wearing face coverings and social distancing that we see in the vulnerable who I think we've really reached. If there's any good news in this right now, it does appear that the infection rate in over 65-year-olds is stable. Uh, the mortality rate in general as a nation is still down, although we have seen increased mortality in Arizona, and it may lag, as you know, for uh, you know, three to four weeks, so we may still see that in some other states. Um, but I do think that we, we do have to remain humble. We don't know this virus. And, you know, whether this is a biological reason that we're having accelerated transmission now, even Europe now has, I think, nine country, eight countries now that are uh, going back on the increase, or whether this is socially defined, you know, clearly, uh, um, you know, there probably are some consequences for the mass gatherings that we had, and I respect the right to protest, but a number of the cities that we see right now that are, uh, uh, you know, concerning to us are cities that have substantial protests, and, uh, and I can tell you that men and women at CDC are working 24-7, but, um, you know, this virus, uh, you know, has its own characteristics. Our best weapon, and I do believe we could stop it in its tracks, as I said before to Jen, if we just all uh, actively embraced with vigilance um, the recommendations of social distance in a face mask and hand washing. But Doc, let, me, let me ask you, if I may, Doc, um, if, if you don't know this virus, who, who can we rely on? It's an important thing, Aaron, to understand that we're learning as we go. You know, I had asked in, in, in January 3rd, to be in, have CDC invited in to work with the Chinese to understand what was going on in Wuhan um, so that we could really understand the uh, conclusions that the Chinese made at that time. First and foremost was that this virus did not transmit human to human. Well, obviously that's incorrect. They thought it was animal to human. Second was there was no asymptomatic disease. Obviously that's incorrect. So it took us some time to learn. When I looked at the first 12 cases in the United States through January and February, I, I, out of over 800 contacts, we only identified two other people that were infected, both symptomatic, and they were both spouses. So we had a sense this was like other coronaviruses, MERS and SARS, and it's going to present symptomatic. It's not that easy to go human to human. And what did we learn in March? Well, readily transmissible human to human and readily uh, uh, could transmit in the asymptomatic state. You faced a lot of questions, many of them critical about the CDC and, and others in the nation's public health community. But I, I'm interested in, in your view of your own work. What should you have said or done that you didn't? You know, Aaron, that's a, a good question. I think first, the most important to me was, and I failed at this, was to get access and to get my people in China in the first week of January. I think that would have really changed the dynamics of our knowledge base for this outbreak, you know. Um, so obviously that's a great disappointment to me that, that we weren't able to get on the ground and to work with our Chinese colleagues and learn these questions before we had to begin to learn them in March and April and May here in the United States. 
I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about others. For example, CDC is a data-driven science-based organization. We're not an opinion organization. So when the early data that we had on face coverings really was that we saw them as really being required for the high-risk healthcare professionals, particularly the the, uh, N95 mask, um, and really wanted those individuals to have it when there were supply issues and really not solid science data, what its impact was going to be on community transmission where we weren't having high-risk exposures, we're trying to intubate somebody that had COVID. Um, And then all of a sudden, we learned that obviously asymptomatic transmission was a big deal, and I realized right away we needed to go with face coverings. Society got confused. I don't really think we flip-flopped. We we use data, and then based on the evolution of data, we modified our recommendation. What's the mask science? What have you What have you actually learned? Concretely? Well, the science, the science. Well, the science. Well, we know that if you do have a face covering on, we can measure um, the virus droplet dispersion that goes through the face covering. It's markedly reduced, markedly reduced, and so um, clearly there's science behind strong science behind the ability to decrease what we would call the infectious dose 50 by just wearing a simple face covering. There's less definitive science that the virus wearing a mask will protect me from picking it up. But I think there, there is some evidence for that. And I think this is where we are right now that the most important tool we have first and foremost is for me to wear a mask to protect you in case I'm asymptomatically infected. And second, there, there may be a benefit, as Tony Fauci has said and others, there may be a benefit in protecting you from picking up the droplets uh, through that face covering. The problem is that probably 20 to 50 or more percent of people that have COVID aren't sick. And that's been the big challenge. And it's going to be a big challenge in, to the, our public health response. This is why developing broader surveillance testing to really look at who's really infected, particularly when you're going into populations that are likely to be highly asymptomatic and complementing the contact tracing, early identification, contact tracing, isolation, contacting that with community-led testing in certain sites, centers, uh, high-risk areas to understand. The other way to identify would be just to test a broader population, identify those that actually are infected, and then isolate those individuals. So we're going to be using a combination of the two strategies uh, now and as we go forward in the in the fall and winter. You know, the progress in vaccine development is real, but I don't want people to wait for that. I want them to really, really understand the vaccine that we have right now is social distancing, hand mask, and hand washing. Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the CDC, our thanks to you and to those in your charge that are, as you say, learning more every day about COVID-19. Coming up, we're going to have more from our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, about celebrating the July 4th holiday safely. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Lin-Manuel Miranda here. I'm so excited that Hamilton is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. I know so many of you were planning to see it in person and couldn't because... But now you can watch all of it. Every song, every moment, right from the comfort of your own home. You don't want to miss this. We will not miss it, Lin-Manuel. Welcome back, everybody, to What You Need to Know. Yes, yeah, sign of the times these days, right? Message from Broadway star Lin-Manuel Miranda. The big Hamilton debut today, streaming on Disney+. Plus. That smash hit musical everybody wanted to see. Can't necessarily get to a theater and haven't been able to in a while, but click, click. All right, Dr. Ashton is here with us. Back with questions. Let's just go right into it. What yep. do we know about the virus's ability to live on surfaces? We've been learning yeah, over time. Exactly. There's some evolving data. Where this is really referring to fomite transmission. That's what the little viral, viral particles are called. Um, published data in the New England Journal of Medicine revealed a range from a couple of hours up to three days. Stainless steel, believe it or not, up to three days. We oh. don't know more porous surfaces, TJ, like clothing, carpets, um, fabrics. But here's what really matters. CDC has said this kind of surface transmission is not the major driver of this virus. However, if you touch a surface like a doorknob, a mouse pad, a phone, and it is contaminated and then you directly touch your eyes, nose, mouth, yes, it is possible you can get sick. Just because a virus is detected on a surface doesn't necessarily mean it can make you sick, but keep cleaning. I'm so sorry. As you're giving these recommendations, I'm sitting up here touching my face the whole time. <laughs> Everyone does it. Everybody does it. Okay, next question here. How can we protect children and babies who can't wear masks when they're out in public? TJ, I love this question because I really want this to sink in for people. You know how we can protect them? We wear the mask. Okay, so think about those little babies, those toddlers under the age of two who can't wear masks. We have to protect them by wearing masks. Um, if you're in a place where people are not wearing masks and you have a baby or toddler, you want to keep at least six feet of distance or not be in that area. That's a very good point. You always say you're protecting somebody else. Think about kids. You have to protect them. Exactly. That's on us. Yeah. Next question here. With cases rising in many states, is there still a PPE and ventilator shortage? We were hearing about this a lot earlier There's going to be, TJ. There will always be, no matter how many we make, how many we order. Because remember, um, 10 years ago, which was the last time published data came out on this, there were about 170,000 ventilators, all different kinds, stockpile, uh, pediatric use, some partial use ventilators that could be used in an emergency. 
that's not enough. Even though the administration had ordered another 187,000 to be made, that is not enough. Mm -hmm. So we need to remember that even though we have these things, if a million people need ventilators, we have a big problem. All right, one more here. Are there any vitamins or supplements that can help boost my immunity to the virus? Great question, because you know I love to bring in food and nutrition uh, into medicine. It's not talked about enough. Right now, the short answer is none conclusively. Mm -hmm. Things are being studied. Zinc always being studied for antiviral properties. Vitamin D is, ha has some clinical trials ongoing, especially because we know that some groups that tend to have low vitamin D levels, black people, elderly people, people with obesity, um, elder, you know, especially in the nursing home population, we're at higher risk of COVID-19 and COVID-19 death. I think that's association, but don't rush out, start taking supplements right now because it is not peer-reviewed recommendation. All right, Dr. Ashton, good stuff as always. Yeah. And folks, you can keep sending your questions into Dr. Ashton on Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, we're on this 4th of July weekend. Party time, right? Yeah, not so much. Uh, the best way to come together during these trying times Still got to stay apart. So let's walk through how to safely celebrate this holiday weekend. ABC contributor Becky Worley is here with us. Where do we even start? How am I supposed to plan a gathering in these times, Becky? I know, TJ. Is there anything better than a warm summer night in the backyard? Ah. Uh, that just can't be replicated on a Zoom call. <laughs> but, you know, you're so smart to mention the caveat. If you're in an area with a lot of coronavirus transmission, this might not be a good idea. But in low transmission areas, there are ways to make it safer. What ways to make it safer? I mean, we're hearing about staying apart. Isn't it kind of awkward the parties we're having these days and inviting people over and say, you stay in your corner, I stay in mine. How's it supposed to work? I call it coronavirus calculus. Like, how are you supposed <laughs> to figure out what you're supposed to be doing? Um, starting with, it should be outside first, full stop. Uh, not inside. Next, you want to be realistic about the amount of people to invite. If possible, you want to keep that list to your social pod or your quarantine that you've been seeing. Small, under 12 people. And that may be dictated by the space you have. Place chairs outside at a six-foot distance, and you'll see how many folks you can accommodate. Um, here's a pro tip. I've noticed that if you place the chairs in advance, people sit in them. If you don't place them, people stand up, and they mingle, huh. and they get closer. So you want to go for that kumbaya campfire circle in advance thing, TJ. Okay, we also need to give them instructions even in the invitation. Right. I made an example, Evite, that helps outline the Emily Post aspects of social gatherings in the age of social distancing. It explains how things will work. Enter through the side of the gate. Bring your own beverages. Even something as TMI as use the bathroom in the hall and put the lid down when you flush. Ew. But it's easier to put that in writing beforehand so you don't have to have, like, a full military brief to arriving <laughs> guests on all the protocols, right? All right. The toilet seat. Put that on the Evite. That's new. Uh, what are we supposed to do with the food? I'm scared to ask now. What, what do we do with the food now, Becky? How do we handle that safely? So, for one, choose menu items that are self-contained. You do not want a taco bar filled with condiments, right? Uh, it should be something that the host serves and delivers to the guests. Barbecue chicken, potato salad, ear of corn. No rolling the corn in the communal butter. You want to keep the condiments to a minimum, okay? That's what happens if you're coming to my house, TJ. All right, the last thing here, uh, tableware, uh, all the dinnerware, all that stuff. 
Uh, I think it is the perfect time for disposable plates and utensils. I like the compostable ones. Have a garbage or compost bin outside so people don't have to go in or the host doesn't have to touch the used plates. Um, one thing you can do, you can individually separate the plates, silverware, glasses, and napkins if you want to use like the fancy stuff. You could put your own stuff on a separate tray for each person. You could put them in little baggies. You could throw a beverage or a water bottle in there. You can really figure out ways to limit how many people are touching things. Things. I mean, come on, Emily Post would be rolling in her grave trying to figure out how to do this <laughs> now. So do it if it's safe, but be careful, okay? okay. Well, Becky, uh, it sounds like party time after that, right? Let's have a good time. And Dr. Ashton here reminded me, put some hand sanitizer out next to your taco bar. Um, yeah, good idea. <laughs> all right, Becky, good to see you as always. Thanks so much. Oh, it's time to be inspired. And all you have to do is listen. Obviously not to me. My next guest is the first ever youth poet laureate in the United States. She's just released a powerful new poem, and she's here to share a portion of that with us. Amanda Gorman, thank you so much for being here. And you have to explain the title. Fury and Faith is the name of the poem. What is that about? Correct. Thank you so much for having me. As for fury and faith, I was really looking at the racial protests that we were having, and I was hearing a lot of questions about the anger that African Americans were feeling, and I felt like the sensation, the protests went beyond that. It went into a faith that things should be better and things can be better, and a type of hope that we can create a more fair future for us all. It, it's, it's your work, it's what you do, but is it an emotional journey? Is it an emotional time for you when you are creating, essentially? Definitely, definitely. You know, I cannot remove from my writing that I, too, am African-American. I, too, am a woman. And so these issues are not remote from me. They exist in the intersectional identity that I have. And so it gets emotional. It gets personal. But I think my role as a poet is to take all of those sensations, all those things that make me human, and then funnel it into a poem that can speak to the future. Okay, well, speak to us now. Amanda, we're not gonna keep everybody waiting any longer. You're gonna perform a bit of it for us. Amanda Gorman, the floor is yours. Go right ahead. You will be told that this is not a problem, not your problem. You will be told that now is not the time for change to begin, told that we cannot win. But the point of protest isn't winning. It's holding fast to the promise of freedom, even when fast victory is not promised. Meaning we cannot stand up to police if we cannot cease policing our own imaginations, convincing our communities that this won't work when the work hasn't even begun, that this can wait when we've already waited out a thousand suns. By now, we understand that white supremacy and the despair it demands are as destructive as any disease. So when you're told that your anger is reactionary, remember that rage is our right. It teaches us this time to fight in the face of injustice. Not only is anger natural, but necessary because it helps carry us to our destination. Our goal is never revenge, just restoration, not dominance, just dignity, not fear, just freedom, just justice. Whether we prevail is determined not by all the challenges that are present, but by all the change that is possible. 
And though we are unstoppable, if we ever feel like we might fail, if we be fatigued and frail when our fire can no longer be fueled by theory, we will be fortified by this faith found in the anthem, the vow, all black lives matter. Black lives are worth living, worth defending, worth every struggle. We owe it to the fallen to fight, but we owe it to ourselves to never stay kneeling when the day calls us to stand together. We envision a land that is liberated, not lawless. We create a future that is free, not flawless. Together, again and again, we will stride up every mountainside, magnanimous and modest. We will be protected and served by a force that is honored and honest. This is more than protest. It's a promise. Good night. Are you kidding me? Oh, Amanda. I am going to call you as soon as I get off the air. I just want you to <laughs> recite that for me a few more times. Okay, that was, um, it's stirring. And in these times, all that we've been doing and been watching and been seeing and been reporting on, that was just phenomenal, yes, but that doesn't even get close to describe it. Amanda, thank you for being here. Congratulations on everything. We hope to see you again down the road and that you'll come back and be with us anytime. Definitely, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, Dr. Ashton. Whew, rage is our right. Rage is our right. She had just, so many lines this. in there that gave me chills, and I was trying to take notes as she was doing it, but it's um, been, a, been a week here. It has us. been a week. Back. It's been a pleasure to be oh, by your side. Uh, I wanted to wrap it up this week in final thoughts by finishing out our uh, talk and thinking about the principles of medical bioethics, yep. and I think it's appropriate to end on the one do no harm. And this means not to intentionally do anything that will harm a patient or a person, either by what you do or by what you don't do. Commission is as important as omission. And right now, again, we extrapolate this to the pandemic, to what we see in some places with some behaviors, omitting things can do harm. So omitting wearing a mask, omitting keeping your distance, omitting keeping your hands clean, can hurt people. So as Dr. Anthony Fauci said, you can be part of the problem, or as he said, and as we just heard, you can be part of the solution. Dr. Ashton, thank you, you as bet. always. Well, it's Faith Friday here at ABC. And as we end the week and head into another important one, it's important to keep our faith and spirits high during this time of uncertainty. So joining us today is Buddhist, Buddhist monastic and teacher, the venerable Tuthan Children. Thank you so much for being here. And how critical has faith been for us in these trying times? Just how important has faith been? Uh, very important because I think uh, faith helps us to have a realistic attitude and a beneficial attitude and not uh, have our mind go all over concocting uh, anxiety fantasies. Anxiety fantasies. That's an interesting way to put it. You talk about the mind there, but what about heart and compassion during these times? Okay, well, in Buddhism, the, the word for mind and heart is the same. So, of course, uh, what we mean in English by heart is quite important. It's, you know, what you feel, how you interact with people, what your motivation is. What are we able to learn? Are there lessons 
we have gotten over the past or, or should be taking away for the past several months, look, with everything going on with, uh, with social inequality, racial justice, those debates going on, and also with the pandemic, what are the lessons you see us taking out of it? Uh, well, I think one of the main ones is we have to take care of each other. And that uh, simply looking out for ourselves without caring about the other people in society uh, is a dead end road and we wind up more unhappy. Uh, so it's really important to take care of other people, to respect other people, to look out for their welfare, because if we do, then we wind up living with happy people. If we only push our own agenda and ignore others, we wind up living with a lot of uh, unhappy, angry people. Well, as we go into the weekend, give us all uh, a little something we can take with us. Uh, some parting words. We're going into a holiday weekend. Uh, we're getting into the summer. A lot's been going on. So what would your message, what would you like to, to give us as we go into the weekend here? Um, be safe, be healthy, take care of other people, uh, respect other people. Uh, the holiday is about freedom and independence. Um, but I think real freedom is not the external freedom to go here and there, wear a mask or not wear a mask, you know. The real freedom is inside our heart when we're free from ignorance, anger, and clinging attachment, yeah. So when we can overcome our selfishness and really open our heart to others, that makes us free, you know. Otherwise, if we don't have that kind of freedom, we may have a lot of external freedom to do all sorts of things or not do them. But that kind of freedom doesn't really make us happy. Well, that is a good message to go into the weekend and certainly one I think we could all hear and need to hear and I certainly need to hear as well. The venerable Toothin Children, thank you so much. You have a good weekend. Thank you for being with us. Okay, you too. Thank you. <laughs> and that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening.